Welcome to the Notion Club Podcast. I'm Ian Duncan, and joining me is Justin Hall. We're doing a joint podcast again after some hiatus from uh, just talking together sort of like old times, the the way this podcast really began with our meeting in, in our version of the, uh, the bird and the baby, Sweet Donkey Cafe, just getting together to discuss what we've been working on, what we've been writing, sort of reading aloud and discussing each other's pieces. It's really what we have planned here tonight is just to get together and, and share what we've been working on and uh, kind of hash it out. So Justin, you've been working on an article about some of the masking issues at CIM and really, uh, of course, it goes far beyond masking. I think a good preamble to this discussion would be just talking about the fact that we're not actually all that interested in politics per se. And we and people might grimace when another episode where we're talking about masking, but I would like to emphasize the significance of this as a, a cultural and sociological, psychological, philosophical phenomena. And really, I'm not actually super interested in politics. I'm interested in theology. I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested mm-hmm. in massive cultural change. But, you know, politics used to be things like, what should our policies be? You know, what... If we're a body, if we're a body politic, what what should we do in order to achieve our goals? And we might we probably share the same goals, but we might mm-hmm. disagree on the best way to get there. Right. And when I was a kid, politics were things like should we spend a lot of money or not, or should stop signs be read, or you know, just really quotidian type stuff. Mm-hmm. And now, what people call politics are things like is an unborn human being. Have have it, does it have any value? Does it have any mm-hmm. rights? Yep. What is a person? Does a person need to have a face for public life to be meaningful? What we call politics today is really more theology, mm-hmm. philosophy, anthropology. We're really so far afield into what we used to call religion. That's far more interesting to me. And so I think the very nature of the word politics has changed in a deceptive way. We're really talking about competing worldviews right. at this point. Well, and it's it's hard not to talk about these things as issues when the things that we should assume, assume as fundamental to reality are being called into question. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, at some point, even literature itself becomes questionable or pointless as to its value. It's interesting. I've so I I recently published an article on masking, not necessarily on the efficacy or the value or lack of value of masking, but this was just yesterday, right? Yeah. That appeared in Marion West. Marion West. And that's the article you're going to be reading. Okay. And some of the responses to the article, it's interesting that let's just say you're not a very popular person right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting that even literary value itself is attached to political position. Isn't that interesting? So, for so example, it was Machiavellian like techniques, yeah, as if yeah. as if that's all it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of knee jerk reactions. One being poor writing mm. because it's the wrong opinion. Right. You know? Right. So good writing is whatever conforms to the right ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, bad writing is whatever doesn't right um which is i mean (laughs) fundamentally illiteracy (laughs) well it's really just like an ad hominem right it's like i disagree with your argument and that's a stupid outfit you're wearing you know like (laughs) right Right. but but it also shows a a complete inability to to actually read i mean one Mm -hmm. of one of my favorite essayists writers orators is christopher hitchens Mm mm-hmm in the realm of morality, philosophy, politics, theology, I probably don't agree with him on anything. Right. Probably on literary taste, we would have a lot of common ground. Mm-hmm. But I love reading his stuff. He's a fantastic writer. Total mastery of the English language. And, uh, and, and you don't feel the need to deny that just no. because you disagree with it. Well, and I've learned a lot from reading him. Uh, his ability to think... Even if he comes to the wrong conclusions, I mean, that as logic works, beginning with false assumptions, mm-hmm. 
Um, his ability to think and to orate was incredible, but that requires that you assume something fundamentally true about the nature of the human image as being reflective of the image of God, mm. and that there's always something good to be attained, some yeah. kind of truth or value, something of, of genuine value to be gleaned mm. even from, you know, even among a lot of chaff. Yeah, the image is never completely effaced mm -hmm. you know there's something there just the, the ability to use language is a good a beautiful thing that remains right one of the most essential things pertaining to to god and the word you right. know right yeah so why don't you set this up for us uh this article the um, particular situation that prompted you to write this so I wrote this article in response to some colleagues at the Cleveland Institute of Music, which is mm -hmm. my alma mater, mm -hmm. who, and I've been in touch with a lot of the current students because just the nature of the last year and how much more extremely ideological higher education is becoming. So this is an article called The Two Faces of Classical Music, The Bureaucratic Tyranny of Music Schools. And the article is sort of self-explanatory as to the... Okay situation so i'll just jump in sounds good this month at the cleveland institute of music two students were placed on disciplinary probation for not wearing masks at first blush this may seem a necessary and just procedure in response to a violation of school policy but given a moment's consideration the details are so contradictory and incoherent that the incident becomes yet another stunning revelation of the brokenness at the center of universities nationwide, bureaucratic tyranny. Isolated incidents, like this bizarre and tragic tale of the two maskless musicians, as we might title it, are not themselves cause to signal the apocalyptic trumpets and prepare for the end of time. However, we should also not be misled by their seeming banality. They are, rather, like kicking over a stump and finding the veins of fungoid disease that has seeped down into the roots and, indeed, throughout the entire forest. These isolated incidents are like singular stumps, and the rot we find is radical and widespread, an ideological pandemic affecting the life of higher education. Consider the following tale an epidemiological case study. The two students were sitting, maskless, in one of CIM's concert facilities, Kulas Hall. Kulas Hall seats 535 audience members. However, in this case, there were only 12 others. The two maskless students were sitting about 20 feet distanced from the others. While it is school policy that masks are required in the hall, it is also school policy that wind players may perform maskless in that same space, and not merely as soloists, but in orchestras. In orchestra concerts, when the stage is occupied by more than 30 musicians in close quarters, wind players are allowed to blow freely through their instruments. These are not the only instances where CIM policy blatantly contradicts itself. There have been other examples of incoherence as well. For instance, CIM published a video on April 23rd of its president making an announcement maskless while standing in the school hallways. Incensed at the blatant hypocrisy of these policies, coupled with the draconian manner of the administration's enforcement, the two students attended a performance in Kulas Hall as free-facers, while making sure to sit at a safe distance. As a result, one faculty member refused to enter the 535-seat concert hall despite the physical distancing, despite being fully vaccinated, and despite the other acceptable and contradictory incidents of masklessness. After the performance was over, the students heard that the faculty member contacted the school administration demanding that the two students be expelled. Consequently, the administration summoned the two students to a meeting with the school's deans, where they were placed on disciplinary probation. Any further incident of masklessness will mean expulsion or suspension, and may already mean the removal of financial aid according to bureaucratic whims. 
Any reader considering these details will be baffled as to the logic, or illogic more like, motivating such flagrant bureaucratic hypocrisy. They must ask themselves the following questions. How can an audience member, at a physical distance of some 20 feet from anyone else, deserve disciplinary action for being maskless, while in that same hall musicians can perform on wind instruments, maskless, and not only be green-lighted by the school, but publicly broadcasted and given school credit? Why can there be 35 audience members permitted in the hall for orchestra concerts when the stage holds 30-plus musicians, but only 10 audience members permitted when the stage holds only one. Why are all audience members required to wear masks, but many of the musicians not? The reasoning behind this hypocrisy emerges most clearly in the following policy. During orchestra concerts, wind players are required to wear masks with slits cut in them. Why would this be? It is unnecessary to even point out that a slitted mask is less than functional, quite the opposite as it only calls more attention to how effectively unmasked the wind players truly are. It is useful to keep in mind that a wind instrument, a flute, an oboe, a horn, a trumpet, is essentially a COVID projectile weapon, launching particles into the air like a minigun. The reasoning has nothing whatsoever to do with functionality, indeed, it has nothing whatsoever to do with viruses or health safety. The reasoning is about symbolizing conformity to bureaucratic rule. A slitted mask is entirely useless, but it is a signal of conformity that must be enacted to demonstrate obedience. The school bureaucrats are implicitly saying, you may not be maskless if you are sitting in the audience at a physical distance of 20 feet from everyone else, and if you do so, we will place you on disciplinary probation. But you can be maskless in that same room, at that same time, while playing a wind instrument and closely surrounded by 30-some other students. Why is this? Because we say so, and you must conform to our contradictory dictates or be punished. It is no coincidence that, just last year, CIM published a document of moral conduct guidelines in which the school unveiled a new online system of incident reporting. This is now a common amenity at universities. Using this system, students can anonymously submit reports on their fellow students who violate the moral conduct guidelines. Guidelines such as these, of course, now include things like microaggressions and hate crimes. Furthermore, the document dictates that, in regard to these violations, intention does not matter. If one has been reported for a hate crime or microaggression, even if one does not intend to commit this offense, he is considered guilty regardless. Students at CIM are not only given the opportunity to snitch on each other in a manner not unlike Soviet informants, they are encouraged to do so, and certainly masking violations are included in this. It is nearly a cliché that emergency powers seized by government tend invariably toward abuse, if not tyranny. Bureaucrats well understand that they cannot control a person's thoughts, However, given power and opportunity, they can control what one does, what he can say, and how he does and says. There is little distinction between controlling a person's actions and speech and controlling his mind. As Dostoevsky writes, words are not yet deeds. And we might add, thoughts are not yet words. A mind cut off from speech and action is no free mind at all. It is also important to note that the contradictions inherent in the abuse of bureaucratic power, like the masking incidents described above, are not at all incidental. Indeed, such hypocrisy is of fundamental necessity to the abuse itself. This is why both irony and contradiction are iconic characteristics of the Stalinist regime of the 20th century. As Theodore Dalrymple explains, the purpose of such propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, 
but to humiliate, and therefore the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. In other words, in order to force a people into conformity, one must break their will, and in order to break their will, one must force them to affirm what they know to be false or contrary to reality. This is how one not only controls their actions and speech, but also their minds, their sense of what is real. To this end, masking requirements offer school bureaucrats the perfect opportunity to accomplish precisely this. They establish pointless orders that must be obeyed on pain of disciplinary action and the removal of financial aid for the mere purpose of coercing obedience. That this obedience is like the humiliating dance of a marionette, and that the bureaucrats buffoon themselves in the process, this is all a necessary part of the charade. In other words, the bureaucrats are hypocrites, but that is also precisely the point. This is why dissent takes the form of mere common sense. Perhaps that means simply saying, excuse me, but aren't masks with slits in them rather useless? But the price of this dissent, the price of voicing common sense, is the wages of bureaucratic wrath. In today's case, the tale of the two free-facing students, the price of common sense means disciplinary probation, the ever-impending threat of expulsion at the whims of the puppeteers. The other price of dissent, perhaps more painfully paid, is loneliness. One might think it would not take much courage to point out the obvious, but within a totalitarian regime, only a rare person will dissent from blatant lies, everyone else will shun them, and shun them not because they necessarily disagree, remember this is not a matter of logic or truth, they will shun them only to maintain the illusion of peace and complacency by accommodating hypocrisy. Imagine a man dissenting in Stalinist Russia. Who's to say what may have been the catalyst, but at last he is driven by the absurdity of his world to dissent, perhaps only passively, merely by not affirming lies. Immediately, the man is opposed by his friends, who have long pledged loyalty to the truth in secret, but now turn on him. How dare you cause all this drama, they say through their masks. Sure, you're living for the truth, but you haven't done so at other times. Now it's all pointless. Just look how inconsistent you are, conforming one moment, dissenting the next. You're basically a hypocrite. If you're going to dissent, you should do it at some other time, when you won't cause any mayhem. Why couldn't you go quietly to the magistrates with your complaint? What is the man to do? Is he to slip on the mask of conformity, back to the safe anonymity of the crowd where no one bothers him because his existence is blank? If he is true to his spirit, and if he is wise, he will leave the crowd to seek out better friends, humans who have faces of their own, who will not give him up in his hour of need, in his moment of truth. His two-faced friends do not say all this because they have more faith in the integrity of their magistrates than in the man, but because going quietly preserves their illusion of complacency. We must feign to love our tyrants, after all, as one loves a big brother. Once all these bureaucracies inevitably crumble under the weight of their own lies, and once the smoke of war clears over the rubble, what will remain is what has always remained, the immutable truths of human nature. Indeed, truth itself might be understood as that which remains. It remains when all the fashions of human cunning fade, as they must. Lies are either smoke that pollutes the air, or masks that cover the face of truth. In the end, their rule is merely theatrical. At one time, classical music was a shining emblem of that which remains. 
It was, as Mahler famously said, the preservation of fire. And because of this, institutions of classical music, like the Cleveland Institute, were called conservatories. Today, that is an ironic term. The bureaucrats at the helm of these institutions no longer care about what remains. Instead, they plan to craft what will be. So they enjoin us to be on the right side of history, because they believe history can be slanted in the direction of their lies. They speak of the future of classical music, while they make a mockery of the remnants of human dignity before them. What does this tell us but that great renovation is necessary, that the rubble of these dilapidated, once conservatories must be reconstructed stone by stone? This is not to say hope does not exist, but until Mahler's fire is reignited, the concert hall will remain a place cast under a shadow, where it is shameful even to show one's face, and where music itself is reduced to a debasing performance of bureaucratic exercise. So that's nonfiction? <laughs> Allegedly. <It's>, yeah. <laughs> it does seem a little like Joseph Heller to me. Like <laughs> Yosarian could play without a mask as long as he was had been vaccinated and did not test positive for COVID. But if he played with, with a mask, he had to have a hole in it. <laughs> But if he played with a mask with a hole in it, he was obviously crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just farcical. When you discover an area where a general principle or movement has been reduced to absurdity, you know, when things are taken to the extreme, I love taking things to the extreme, you know, because it, it obviously reveals what perhaps the mediocre application wouldn't, of these rules wouldn't reveal. Yeah. But here, at the furthest extremity, you can obviously see the absurdity of it. Yeah, right. And, and also just the unsustainability and the inhumanity of it. Like, obviously, human life cannot go on under these constraints. Like, if there were really a disease afoot that was so contagious mm-hmm. and so deadly, we, we really should all be boarded up in our homes and there should be no even attempt to go on with with normal life or with music right. or anything i mean yeah. if if it was ebola we wouldn't be doing we wouldn't be doing orchestra right you know i mean that would be preposterous yeah the fact the absurd thing is that we're attempting to go on as if humans could go on without faces as if that were perfectly fine and you actually showed me a picture i think last week <laughs> of a wind some poor <laughs> schmuck <laughs> Sitting in a in a tuxedo with a mask that had a hole cut out of his mouth, it looked like he had worn some sort of bondage gear to to his orchestra job. And this is we're supposed to take this with grave seriousness. I'm sorry, I can't take that seriously. I mean, where else do you find a mask with a hole? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's that's. Just... I mean, if the if the virus was as serious as they're acting like it is well while contradicting themselves right the only reason to be playing music would be to ennoble the human dignity right we would actually (laughs) need it yeah but that is not even a thing Mm -hmm. taken into consideration with all of these it's so clearly not actually about the disease i mean the, the sheer fact that we have had the same conditions before without this behavior we've had Mm. the flu with us for a hundred years and we never you know not since the early earliest days of the flu have we freaked out as a society like this we've had diseases afoot that were just as deadly Mm -hmm. and yet we never did this it's so clear that something else is going on but i do i do have one suggestion i would say (laughs) Um, and this is like one of those nitpicky writer things, but I really want the, uh, COVID, was it COVID minigun? Uh-huh. I really want it to be a COVID blunderbuss. <laughs> Just see like a clarinet true. as a, a COVID blunderbuss. Well, you know, uh, a couple of things. One ironic thing is before this, it was absolutely impossible to get out of playing an orchestra, even if you were sick. 
mm-hmm. in order to if i wanted to get out of playing an orchestra i would have to get a doctor's note wow so i would have to be sick enough to bother getting a doctor's appointment going to see the doctor mm-hmm. and getting a note and then bringing it to the manager within 24 hours right. saying i can't be at a rehearsal yeah and at this point if i say uh, i have a one degree fever <laughs> then i'm out right yeah it used to be i mean your illness be damned like you would better be in your place if you pass out we'll probably throw a glass of water in your face the other thing is how in the world would you satire this <laughs> you because if, if i i mean if if this were you know if if i wanted to write a satire and we sat right. down at one of our writers meetings and i said okay so i, I have this great idea about <laughs> satirizing masks and orchestra <laughs> and i'm gonna have I mean, I know this is absurd, and maybe it's too absurd for people to take seriously, but I'm, I'm going to have the wind players wear masks, but with these holes cut in them. Right. The only thing better, I think, would be to use like a HEPA filter instead of a damper on a trumpet <laughs> or something like that to try to blow through the filter. Which... Well, you know, they, they tried to, to put masks on the instruments. <laughs> of course they did. Well, at least it's reduced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that thousand percent chance is reduced by another thousandth which is totally worth it justin it's interesting to me you know we were discussing before we started recording a, a little bit about some of the comments that you've received and it seems and this is not at all unique to your post but a lot of people you know when 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 people s- sort of sound the alarm like you are in this article about stalinist tendencies mm-hmm. uh, policies that reveal that same inclination and people tend to respond as if that were ridiculous as if that couldn't happen again mm-hmm. as if somehow we are we're so far beyond you know hitler or stalin or any of those things i just find it very interesting that even people who are not entirely ignorant of history they know what you're talking about they don't believe that humanity is capable, or at least they don't believe that their politically correct party is capable of those types of atrocities. They right. really think yeah. they're above it, right. which is the amazing thing about socialism and, and really Marxism. They really, despite the atrocities of the past, they really believe that this time they're going to do it right. Yeah. And it it just, you know, it's just irrelevant that it's always failed in the past, or it's just irrelevant that it always led to some sort of disaster or some sort of, you know, horrific violation of human rights. That's just, that's just not pertinent to this new application of those same doctrines. Well, it's unfortunate, well, to some degree that in this medium, a 2000 word article, you know, you have to reduce it to a category of, you know, Stalinism, mm-hmm. um, which is a very specific, it's not, it's not that there's a, that it's a metaphor. It's actually the same philosophy, right? you know, that's undergirding what's happening at our institutions. Mm-hmm. And in this case, there's a reason why I say Stalinism or Stalinist and not Leninist, mm-hmm. you know, or not um, Hitlerist, right? Um, because it's it's a specific kind of the ideology right one of the major factors there is the irony the contradiction of it you know one of the the things that is so i mean it's it's almost a satire in itself is the irony that characterized that whole era in stalinist russia Yeah, the illogic and the fact you will accept the illogic and you will repeat it. I mean, Mm. Orwell did a great job of of capturing this in 1984. You know, war is peace, freedom is slavery. Yeah, and I mean, that's, as we've talked about in other episodes, I mean, that's actually an intrinsic part of the structure of the ideology itself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a perverted Hegelian legacy that, you know, contradiction is where reality is found. And Mm. so... There is always contradiction and you have to just, I mean, it's kind of like, well, yes, it's, it's a contradiction, but it's necessary. Mm-hmm. That's how they implement their policy. And part they, of, part of that is functional to, as Dalrymple says, to humiliate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never get tired of that Dalrymple quote. Yeah. And, and I've had it on my phone for the longest time. 
so that the next time someone confronts me in the grocery store about not wearing a mask, I can whip it out and mm-hmm. read it to them. But mm-hmm. no one ever does. <laughs> so I've been so disappointed that I haven't got to <laughs> read that spontaneously to someone. But it's true. And the interesting thing about Stalin, you know, we tend to think of Hitler as opposing his worldview on other races, other countries. Stalin, of course, participated in that to some extent as well. But but really more so with Stalin oppressing his own people, mm-hmm. opposing the the humanity of his own countrymen. Well, and also an unfathomable disregard for human dignity. Right. I mean, if the only example you need for that is how he flung soldiers to the Wehrmacht, mm-hmm. the the in Operation Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, I don't I don't know if it's accurate to say that there were more Russian soldiers than Germans had bullets, mm-hmm. but that's how Stalin treated them. Right. Completely expendable. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, we're talking about this topic even as, you know, the CDC has changed their recommendations, mm-hmm. which is also a silly a silly term because it's not a recommendation, it's an order an edict but it's not as if this podcast were suddenly going to be irrelevant and out of date and merely a and i really get that sense that this is not merely a fad in or a moment in history that's going to be a blip and it's gone and wow Mm -hmm. that was really weird that Mm -hmm. time you know Mm -hmm. there really is a sense that there has been a sea change and in some sense masking is always going to be with us and and we see that even now even though the cdc has these guidelines lo and behold masking is not going away overnight corporations are going to continue to enforce it there, there's going to be you know it just if you're like me you just get that sense that this is not over yet yeah well yeah. it's a really effective and this is a, a bizarre phenomenon that i've been thinking about but why is something like masking, why does it suddenly divide people at the ideological mm-hmm. lines? Mm-hmm. You know, that it just so happens that, and this is at risk of overgeneralization, um, and, and really not about people who wear masks for whatever rationalization, but the people right. who enforce it. Right. They are people whose ideology innately disregards human dignity. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm I'm more interested in masking as the inclination of p- the power-hungry bureaucracy. Like, why is it that this is like the crack cocaine of control, you know, yeah. to, to finally be able to say, I will control your face, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it's it just, it's almost like it's become this holy grail of mm. this is finally it. This is finally the, the full measure of our our control we now we have achieved the level of control that we've always wanted it's sort of like that that last little gap has been completed yeah and now anything is possible you're forced to ask about first principles you know mm-hmm. one thing people will say about masks is i mean it's it's such a, a nebulous thing why not just wear a piece of cloth right if if wearing a piece of cloth which is you know not a big deal means that you can play music why not just do it mm-hmm. to which i i would just ask why play music mm-hmm. if the human visage has no value whatsoever that it ought to be preserved and that all of the social implications of masking and the and the denigration of human dignity that goes along with dr- mm-hmm. a draconian enforcement of it you know mm-hmm. all of that is nebulous why are we playing music mm-hmm. like what's what's the point of it right well, music is just a vestige at that point and a doomed vestige because obviously the principles that protected it have departed mm-hmm. and are no longer in operation. So it's only a matter of time before, you know, and you've talked about this before, classical Beethoven, you know, classical music itself is under under attack as a, as a construct of, of white supremacy and, and that sort of thing. So it's really only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. before that too is is intolerable and you know this is just or another form of orwell's boot stomping the human face forever and that's yeah. that's why that's the perfect ending to that novel it's it's the attempt to eradicate the very face of humanity as you know being offensive 
you know, to the, to the, to the, to tyrants, to tyranny, to the face of God, perhaps, you know, that's really mm-hmm. what they want to eradicate forever. I, I just feel like if, if objectivity is a thing in the future, there's going to be a lot of studies coming out. There's going to be a lot of psychological, maybe not, maybe there never, there ought to be a lot of psychological studies coming out. The implications of this, what it's done to people's psyches, what it's done to their mental health, how it's deranged our society. There's this thing in in the world of intelligence operatives called the shit test. And I, I don't I don't mean to frivolously use uh, be a potty mouth here, but that is the term for when you're developing an asset, you know, as some sort of intelligence operative, you're you're hoping to exploit someone for information or to use them in whatever way to accomplish your your purposes and you know you're you're wondering how successful you've been in developing this asset so you have a test and this test is to see how much progress you've made so what you do is you you know you call them up in the middle of the night or you you frantically make some demand, like, I need you to meet me in 10 minutes with $10,000 at the corner of such and such intersection, or I need you to go steal a car, or I need you, you know, you, and you push that person to the very edge to see what they will do for you. Mm-hmm. And if they do it, you know, you have them, you mm-hmm. have them on the hook. Yeah. And now you can ask them to do the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel like, is what has happened. Now, I'm not really a, a smoky backroom conspiracy theory. I think the reasons are organic to yeah. evil human impulses. Mm-hmm. But what, what we've accomplished in this last year is that sort of test. We have, and we have failed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have shown anyone with this sort of tyrannical urge that in fact we are ready to comply and we are ready to go to the next step well the next step for cim specifically is requiring vaccines right there are plenty of people who refused to i mean essentially did not dissent over masking Mm -hmm. and in fact didn't support the two students who were free facing right and kind of disowned them in some sense who are now expecting to fight back against vaccines. Right. After yielding so much ground and proving to the bu- the bureaucrats that, yeah, we disagree, but we will conform to anything. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to speak about this in a purely ideological way, as a, masking as an ideological metaphor. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demand that you fly this flag that shows your symbolic conformity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then almost the next metaphor is, is I'm going to demand you inject this into your body. Yeah. We take it to the next level. And isn't that just like, I'm going to demand to control your thoughts. I'm going to get inside of your head Mm -hmm. or inside of your body. And these are the thoughts you're going to think. This is what's going to go on inside you now. And that's just the next level of, of, you know, you first you control behavior, then you control thought, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you're you own that individual. Yeah, and that's the point about if you can control someone's actions and and the words speech, they use. it doesn't matter what they're mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. You, you know? you'll get that. Yeah. Yeah. You get the thoughts thrown in if you can control right. behavior and words, then eventually you'll have the thoughts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important for people to stand up. I mean, forget first principles. Let's talk about any principles at all. <laughs> you know, other than yeah. convenience. Yeah. And power. Yeah. I mean, really, this is Foucault's dream come true. It's mm-hmm. just raw power. I can get you to do whatever I want you to do because I will squash you. I will crush you. I will expel you. You know, I will call you to a meeting of the deans. It's just, it's amazing to me. Like, just imagine years ago if this had been the flu and it would, it, someone was seen sneezing into the open air. And now they didn't <laughs> sneeze into their elbow. They didn't sneeze into a handkerchief. Mm. We're going to call a meeting of the deans of the school. And this person is going to be expelled for an inappropriate sneeze. I mean, that's essentially just as preposterous as what's happening. Oh, yeah. Easily. You know, how dare you during flu season sneeze? Yeah. Yeah. That's unacceptable. (laughs) I mean, compare an orchestra reduced to something as degraded as wearing masks with holes in them. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and if you talk to any of the, I mean, nobody is being taken for fools. Um, yeah, and that's m- the that's the validity of the Val the Dalrymple quote is people know better and they're mm-hmm. doing it anyway. They feel absolutely humiliated to, to be sure. doing this, you know. And sure. so, what is the point of playing music if the experience itself is degrading? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you compare that to the the, the Leningrad Orchestra. Mm. rehearsing Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony during a siege. Mm-hmm. They've all starved nearly to the point of death. Mm-hmm. And during orchestra, they're collapsing out of mm-hmm. absolute exhaustion. Um, one orchestra player comes in late and the, the conductor yells at him. And the orchestra player has to explain that he's sorry, but he's late because he was burying his wife. Wow. The, the conductor says, it, it doesn't matter if you're burying a family member, you have to be here on time. Wow. <laughs> um, because, they, I mean, at the very center of all that they were doing was, you know, they were holding on to some high ideal mm-hmm. of human dignity. Something greater than you, greater than your life, greater than the circumstances of your life. Yeah. But now there's nothing greater than safety. No. So, well, let me ask you this what is what's the point of writing articles like this um because sometimes it i mean it can seem futile right well i mean i think you've answered it already and you know in the beginning when you were talking about or maybe it was in the article and you're talking about the value of dissent you know the value of even a single person dissenting mm-hmm. um and it's really all it takes and and uh rob Dreer talks about this and in, in his in his book that we both read uh, live not by lies you know if, if in a totalitarian system, if even one person dissents, then the whole thing can come crashing down because it has to be absolute. It has to, there has to, conformity has to be complete. Mm-hmm. And so, writing like this is valuable for so many reasons, but it's 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 valuable for I mean First Amendment reasons. I mean you know controversial speech is the most precious of all. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, and that's that's a bitter pill when it's not your side being promoted, but it is. You know, it's the very reason we have the First Amendment. And the value of this for the future, for there being a, a history left behind that is less than homogenous, so that there are voices of dissent and there can be discussion, and there is not simply an announcement of party policy um, but there can be real brain activity with dissenting adults who can have conversations about opposing viewpoints um, that's and which ironically is the heart of a liberal education mm-hmm. but is now being rejected by the majority of mainstream uh, academia so do you have anything to read i do this is also nonfiction. <laughs> So another this, era. This yes. is this, <laughs> this is going to just demonstrate how broad a category nonfiction actually is. So this is a piece about a barber shop that I used to go to uh, when I lived in Dallas. Uh, as when I was single, lived in Dallas in an apartment by myself. And Dallas is sort of an interesting city, and, and like any city, you know, there's pockets of history there, and you know, everything is not completely modernized and if you find it there are these these sort of time capsule pockets that that they're the old you know usually you think of old people sitting in rocking chairs on a you know on a porch out in the country somewhere that's where you go to find old people but there are old people in the city too which is something you don't you know we don't really think about anymore and so this is this is a story about one of those discoveries Six months had passed since I'd been to Chambers. Even though it was only a few blocks from my apartment, I'd been driving past it on the way to a swankier establishment in Uptown, a place where the walls were plastered with posters of rock stars and speakers blasted top 40 music so loud you never felt compelled to make conversation with the barber, if you could call them barbers. They were attractive young women, most of them, running their fingers through your hair and massaging your shoulders with the vibrator and passing sly smiles in the mirror. Like much of the rest of Dallas, it seemed to be a social experiment to see how hyper-sexualized an industry could become. 
Nothing remotely like that waited for me inside chambers. I pulled off Live Oak Street and parked my jeep against the curb. Before me was a flat-faced row of storefronts. Plate glass windows with aluminum trim. Beige brick, unchanged since the 40s. Barber pole emblems painted on the windows. Inside, bare fluorescent bulbs ran the length of the low ceiling. The sweet scent of shaving cream. Old men in barber's frocks shuffled around even older men, caped and seated in the chairs, all of it hypnotically slow. The barber's elbows were raised, their hands working, clipping with deft sawing motions, trimming along the top of the comb, clumps of hair skiing down the capes and gathering in piles on the floor, little critters of hair, silver, brown, and black. I felt like something of a traitor showing my face there, showing my hair, that is, precisely because it wasn't six months long. I took a seat in one of the yellow plastic chairs and started flipping through a copy of Men's Health, the primary content of which, ironically, was healthy women. There was no music besides the activity of the shop itself. AM talk radio rumbled low in the background. Electric clippers came to life harshly and hummed. The measured phrases of men talking to other men, not so much gossip as a kind of collective remembering. What's his name, son, used to come in here? Of course you heard what happened to him. A shame, that young. Another story recounting a robbery down on the south side. Criminals so dumb they couldn't get the cash drawer open came out of the store holding the entire register. The cops waiting in the parking lot with guns drawn. Nothing a lawyer could do to get you out of that one. A chuckle and the scissors going back to work, the smile lingering. Hard to believe what the world's coming to anymore. Dialogue from a Cormac McCarthy novel. The shop only had room for three barber chairs. They had chrome sides and yellow vinyl seats, cranks and levers, a metal grill to rest your feet on. They looked like they'd been made in the glory days of American muscle cars, possibly even out of the same parts at the same factory. Only two barbers were working that day, and in the back of the shop the last chair stood empty, but empty in a profound way. The counter behind it had been cleared. The clutter was gone, the bottles of hair products, the newspaper clippings scotch-taped to the mirror, even the floor shone clean, and as soon as I saw it, I knew what must have happened. You're up, partner, the barber behind the middle chair said. He shook out the cape as though he were a matador and I in the role of the bull. I got up and tossed aside the magazine, dropped into the chair and put my feet up on the grill. The barber cranked the chair down a little, fitted a white paper collar around my neck, fastened it behind me, then reached out and cast out the cape letting it float down over me before he tucked it under the collar. How you been doing? Less of an actual question than the desultory beginning of a traditional haircut. If there was any accusation in his voice pertaining to my recent lack of loyalty, I couldn't discern it. Pretty short this time, we decided. Tapered up, maybe an inch on top. He turned to rummage the countertop for the clippers and the correct attachment, and I was left facing that last empty chair. It had silver studs around the edges, like an old upholstered couch. On the seat back, a piece of clear masking tape had been employed as a patch over a small tear. I hated to ask, and I dreaded the answer I knew was coming. The barber might have even heard it in my voice, only the slightest bit of optimism, the last intonation rising to the question mark, is Mr. Chambers still cutting hair these days? A pause just long enough for a ponderous intake of breath, and the words let out like a sigh, one that had already been repeated plenty of times. Mr. Chambers passed away. Been almost three weeks now. I'm sorry to hear that, I said, and I knew it sounded flat, because I'd already prepared the response in my mind, already put the quotation marks around it, assembled it as soberly as a carpenter piecing together a coffin. 
he was a good man, I said, trying to add something to it. And the barber agreed, told me how he died, 78 years old, just dropped dead on a Saturday afternoon. He'd worked that very morning. He'd been unloading groceries from the car when his wife turned around and saw him falling. Paramedics were summoned, but they never did get anything out of him. Probably dead when he hit the ground, the barber said, but his voice was soft, low, and respectful, as though we were exchanging words quietly at a viewing, out of earshot from the family, standing before the casket, propped open to see the silken interior, flower arrangements around us on metal stands. I used to come in here just for the stories, I confessed. The barber chuckled, his scissors snipping around my ears. Yeah, he had some good ones. I also used to go home and frown in the mirror at the uneven tufts Mr. Chambers often left, wondering if he could even see them or if his hands had trembled, but still I kept going back for the stories. Sitting in that chair was like riding in the car with your grandfather, and the scenery passing by was the landscape of the old man's memory. The clippers hummed, vibrating against my head, a giant bumblebee buzzing past my ear, grazing up my head in swaths, and Mr. Chambers would tell stories about another time, another era when Texas had been wild and untamed, how everyone in his hometown had carried guns on their hips, naked without it, he said, and I noticed he wore a holster on the belt cinched tight around his waist, just a simple leather holster for a revolver, and his concession to the new state of civilization was apparently to lay the gun somewhere out of sight for the comfort of his customers, perhaps under the newspapers piled on the counter. But that holster was a tribute, a lingering effect from a time when men were men, he might have said. But he didn't have to. The black-and-white photograph of Lyndon Johnson on the wall seemed to say it for him, that solemn face, war-weary, cape and stiff paper collar tucked under his chin, bright against his dark-lined neck, and a much younger Billy Chambers standing beside him, smiling, honored by the moment. A three fifty-seven was what he carried, he told me, and we talked about the qualities of the cartridge, and even though Mr. Chambers was thin and bird-like, shrunken with age, I could imagine him as a character in a western, a Larry McMurtry novel, perhaps Gus from Lonesome Dove. He would be glad to help me with the paperwork for a license to carry, he said, and I planned to take him up on it, planned to start wearing my cowboy boots more often, because even standing on his feet cutting hair, the old man wore his, black with a respectable sheen, holster and gun and boots, the irreducible components of a true Texan's attire. Mr. Chambers' face was angular, bifocals in square frames over his deep-set eyes, shock-white hair floating around his head as he worked. I would watch him in the mirror when he stopped to search through the clipper attachments, and I loved him for his history, for his refusal to modernize with the changing city around him, the counter behind the chair still lined with cans of Barbasol and jars of green antiseptic with scissors and combs and straight razors soaking inside them, old tins of pomade, brands I imagined had been out of production for decades. Mr. Chamber found the attachment, snapped it onto the clipper head, and told me about playing in a bluegrass band, the brassy, jazzy sound they had, the way the women could dance, the crazy, half-civilized places where they performed, the man with the bullwhip who went around betting people he could snap a cigarette right out of their lips, and the way Mr. Chambers had refused to let him attempt it, all in the wording, the stress of the syllables, the hell no emphasis of, you aren't going to pull that stun on me. He told me of an earlier Dallas, far different, a time when independent filmmakers were attempting to compete with Hollywood, a movie director that hired him to drive his 39 Ford back and forth in the background of a shot, 
how many cents an hour they'd paid him, still some wonder in his voice over that, just for cruising back and forth, windows rolled down, an arm hanging out, and the way he'd revved the engine, he said, grinning, and I could almost hear the throaty sound of the old Ford's carburetor, could almost imagine that grin transposed to a younger man's face. He'd been in the war, too, and I don't remember how it came up, but I consider it an honor that he told me about riding in a naval convoy across the ocean, how some of the men had been horsing around on deck until one of them fell overboard. I didn't mention that I'd seen it happen in a movie once, freshly minted soldiers leaning against the rails, hollering for the ship to stop, the look on their faces when they realized it wouldn't when they realized the war would not so much as pause for any of them, their friend's arm outstretched desperately but already growing small, his cries drowned out by the battleship's turbines, his face taken by the trough of a wave, and the other ships passing in the distance, gray as tombs, and all around them the ocean, cold and dark and big enough to swallow them all. No. I didn't pretend to know anything about that. I fell quiet. Mr. Chambers paused to tug at the cape. He brushed a lump of hair to the floor, and both of us watched that sailor pass out of sight behind the churned-up water of the ship, the movie version in my mind, something I'll never know in his. He moved in again with the scissors and comb, cutting my hair for the last time, wrinkling up his whole face to lift the glasses on his nose, shoulders hunched to raise his arms, back bent, humped in a long, tired arc, vertebra on vertebra, year on year, story on story, stacked all the way down into his boots, and the boots shuffled, plowing up a pile of hair as he sidestepped slowly around the chair, passing the comb over me here and there, smoothing it out, squinting for the tuft he missed, leaving the rest. That's awesome. It's really nostalgic. Thank you. Yeah, I actually attempted to get that, um, submitted that to a magazine in Dallas after Mr. Chambers died, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. I never got any feedback on it. It was one mm-hmm. of those, uh, one of those, you know, I love that saying, when an old person dies, a library is lost, you know, and he was definitely one of those, those figures who a whole, a whole group of a whole library of stories passed with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how that evokes exactly the experience of that kind of barbershop. You know? mm-hmm. There's a kind of like a solipsistic electricity, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but just, the tiniest details, how that, that can bring an entire experience mm-hmm. to those authenticating details that take you there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Barbershops are some of the most fossilized places. <laughs> I feel like at least the old ones, you know, they're mm-hmm. usually run by men. And so there's no need to change anything for decade upon decade, you know, but, uh, this was definitely one of those little pockets and I actually looked online and it's, it's permanently closed now, you know, it's gone right, yeah. and he's gone and it's gone. And, and, and there, maybe there's our answer is why you write these things down. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we are historians to some extent, whether we're writing a creative nonfiction piece or a, a, a philosophical essay analysis, we are, we're capturing, trying to capture the moment we're in to yeah. be, to speak into it with truth to capture it in an authentic way yeah. and, and to put readers there. It's a, it's a, a really interesting cultural experience that mm-hmm. going there and the, the chairs, the waiting chair set up like mm-hmm. an audience and the, yeah, the yeah. barbers bantering in right. a way like they've rehearsed, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all very, there's a lot of unspoken rules that govern that behavior Mm -hmm. that no one really thinks about, but everyone knows how you behave and what you say and what you don't say, especially for men. I feel like that's a really Mm -hmm. interesting experience. I I, I also feel like this is sort of an appeal for younger people to, to find older people and and get them to tell them stories. You know, you don't know what that, that shriveled old person has been through in their life 
when they were young like you are and when mm-hmm. they when the world was different and we we desperately need those stories and yet i feel like one of the processes of of or one of the results of modernization has been the grouping the isolation of age groups from one another you yeah. know we, we went yeah. from the one room schoolhouse you know this is just one example to age segregated grades you right. know we're never the twain shall meet yep. you know no our idea ch- our churches <laughs> the same model. churches do the same thing yeah. or we have services that are you know you know it catered to one particular set or another mm-hmm. but we need to mix mm-hmm. and that's back to covid one of the most damaging things about covid was the way that we isolated you know ourselves from the elderly and yeah. and uh not not because we're a danger to them but because we need them to tell us how to live what life and we need those stories to figure out our own lives well i think the the generation that is now passing the greatest generation the greatest generation um i i hesitate to ever say unprecedented but probably some of the greatest the most drastic changes that have been made and mm-hmm. worldwide in one century right you know and and they're at the very end of that my mm-hmm. grandmother was born well before the great depression right. in 1922 right. um she was married with kids by the time world war ii happened right you know and she lived on a farm uh, they had horses. They traveled on horses, mm-hmm. um, you know, and to go from that to yep. talking generation. to people through iPhone, yep. FaceTime, you know. One generation. And my family, for some reason, has very long generations. My yeah. great-grandfather was born in 1863. Nice. Um, so. That is that is early, yeah. Because my, even my great-grandfather was born in, you know, I'm older than you, and my great-grandfather was born in 1890 something so yeah that is amazing yeah i think i think it's an average age of 40 that they would have kids oh wow so interesting yeah that's uh you know during times of social upheaval and radical change are the times when we need those stories more than ever to lest we forget who we were and what might have been lost and what needs to be compensated for like our humanity you know in the face of radical technological changes we need to remember that you know your great-grandparents rode around on an ox cart you know lest we Mm -hmm. think that tesla is normal and somehow morally superior you know we need to remember that i wonder in you know a hundred years when generation z is reaching about a hundred if uh what kinds of stories will be told when know from your earliest ages you spent all your time on screens and tablets and the internet and social media i remember this one time i was playing call of duty and uh (laughs) came around this corner (laughs) wasted these two digital nazis (laughs) pretty amazing (laughs) yeah yeah we need to get out and have real life experiences as humans Mm -hmm. full as fully human not accept dehumanization not accept the digital world as a as a substitute for the real oh mm-hmm. I, I feel like that might be the tie-in for our two articles where they come together <laughs> right yeah. you know the value of the real the value of of human life lived as god intended free under the sun mm-hmm. you know <laughs>